1 Thessalonians, starting a new book tonight. Thanks, Jason, for covering last week, brother. You'll be like, I only did verse 2 of uh, Colossians 4, so you might want to go finish that book out. My bad. 1 Thessalonians. Pros Thessalonikes A. The first to the Thessalonians. Uh, And Nike is N-I-K-E with a swoosh mark. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thessalonica was a... Oh, I better put my microphone on. See if we can get some recording going on. Um, So do we have a map up there uh, available to view of where Thessalonica was? It's in Europe, up there at the top, kind of center. Europe, Macedonia was um, Europe. Uh, kind of the, the eastern end of Europe. Philippi uh, was uh, kind of the beginning of Paul's European ministry. And then we'll see tonight, he head, headed down um, to uh, Thessalonica there. But it was a prominent seaport, and it was actually the capital of that Roman province called Macedonia. There were about 200,000 people in the city and uh, the nickname for Thessalonica was Solonica, which is way easier to say if you have to nickname a, a town. Um, there was a very big Jewish population in Thessalonica, and uh, there were ethics that were brought from monotheism and, and the Jewish belief in this one God, Yahweh, that a lot of the Greeks around the area were, were being disenchanted by polytheism and the depravity and immorality that came along with it. And so um, when Christianity came to Thessalonica, um, there were a lot of people that were really, it was like the Lord was preparing them for the gospel because they, they didn't like the, the paganism and they were intrigued by this monotheism and then the life and the power that came with the preaching of the gospel uh, really just set it up. The Lord just... He knew what he was doing for sure at that moment in human history. As Galatians says, it was just at the right time that God sent forth his son, born of a woman and, and uh, born of a virgin. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan writes about this letter. This letter is full of interest because it is certainly among the first of those which has been preserved for us from the pen of Paul. So uh, this is the first epistle of Paul, really even though uh, we've studied so many by the time we've finally gotten to it. Um, It was the first letter that he wrote to European Christians. And in this letter, the fundamental things of the Christian faith and life really are clearly set forth. So let's get into uh, the book. And starts out, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have Paul, Sylvanius, and uh, when I was in high school in Corvallis, I had a friend who was uh, lived on a dairy farm outside of Monroe, and his name was Paul Silva. And so uh, when we were in high school, it was that revival that I was praying about happening. We were all reading the word together, and we were like, Paul, your name's in the Bible, Paul Silva. But, um, and so, uh, funny as I read it and I, and I'm reminiscent, but really Sylvanius, 
is the other term or another word for Silas, who was a traveling companion of Paul during the second missionary journey after Barnabas and Paul split ways in Acts 15. Silas traveled with Paul, was uh, put in prison with him there in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And, um, and then the other companion who was writing this is Timothy. So Silas and Timothy both were on the second missionary journey with Paul when the Thessalonica church was founded. And so it's interesting that 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are both, uh, they both include the three amigos, um, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And uh, it says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, and then this classic um, intro from Paul, grace and peace, sometimes grace, mercy, and peace. But he's writing to the church. And so let's flip back to Acts. And I have it in the um, slides tonight if you, if you want to view it. But if you want it in your, in your Bible in front of you, Acts 16, 6 is uh, kind of how this ministry to Europe started. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had just split ways. They'd had a dissension about taking John Mark with them. John Mark, who is the cousin of Barnabas and had abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the first journey. And Paul said, I don't want this guy. He's unfaithful. We can't take him with us. And Barnabas, as the son of encouragement, is like, come on, let's bring him with us. And, you know, we can still disciple him. And he's got so much to offer. And Paul's like, there's no, there's no room for uh, slackers on these missionary journeys, you know. And so Barnabas ends up going another direction and taking with him um, John Mark. And then Paul takes Silas and they head on their journey. And that's where we're at in Acts 16.6. Now when they'd gone through Persia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they'd come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So uh, what we have is, if you're able to, you know, we can either show the map again, or you can just get an idea that, that as they headed out from Antioch, um, you know, the, the Lord wouldn't let them head um, to the south, and he wouldn't let them head to the southwest he wouldn't let them head to the northeast they couldn't go to the north and so they find themselves really up against the sea the lord had really closed all doors and they were just up against the sea like well where do we go now and that's when paul uh, has this vision in the night verse nine a man of macedonia stood and pleaded with him saying come over to macedonia and help us now after he had seen the vision immediately we saw it and luke is writing this and so he it's he went with them. We sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So sometimes that's that's how missionaries move. You know, they're like, well, we, the Lord's not letting us go this way, and this way's shut, and here we are, and we're up against the ocean. And then you have a dream, and you say, well, that the Lord must be calling us to go uh, over to Europe, over to Macedonia. And um, one guy wrote of this that it was one small step for man one dramatic step for the issues of the kingdom. And it really was. They're going to hop across that chant, that ocean and, uh, and then revival is going to just begin to sweep through Europe, which is really exciting. And so we read of this happening in Acts 16 when uh, 
um, Paul will um, begin his ministry in Philippi, and and then he'll move from there to Thessalonica. And so let's look at Acts 17, 1 through 15. And here we have the history of the Thessalonian church. Now, when they'd passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and the road that they would go on here was called the Ignatian Way, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks. And so, as I was mentioning before, it just seems that there was this um, ripe, um, r- these ripe hearts among these group of Greeks that were disenchanted with the paganism of polytheism, and they were interested in this monotheism, and they were what were called God-fearers. They weren't born again yet, but they were kind of in that camp of like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Uh, you know, his heart was being drawn, and it was just like cultivated and ripe, just as we've been praying for um, Nepal, that, you know, the hearts up in these mountains that have never heard before, that the Lord would be doing things, preparing hearts for the seed of the gospel to germinate and take root and grow and bear fruit. And so these God-fearers, um, it, it says that, uh, that there was a great multitude of these guys who were persuaded. And it goes on to say, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And that's just a phrase that I have always loved, that they've turned the world upside down. And of course, what they really just did in preaching the gospel is they turned it right again. You know, they turned it backside right, right side up. You know what I'm saying. Don't think too hard about it. You'll get a headache. Um, But, you know, they've come here too. And Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they'd taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And so, um, you know, these Jews, they don't like the gospel. They're hearing of the, um, uh, the preaching of it. It said there in verse 5 that they were envious. Um, isn't that interesting? That what They're offended, but they're envious in the preaching of the gospel. And so uh, they go and they get these guys that um, they're not Jews. They're just evil men who are hanging out riffraff in the marketplace and these guys start this giant mob they go get jason by the way i always love the name jason because i think of this brother from thessalonica you know who um you know they they go and they take him and they there's this mob and and um there's these accusations of of anarchy in verse seven 
And then, you know, but finally at the end of the day in verse 9, you know, you give them some money and they'll give Jason back. And, um, you know, it's kind of how it ends until they're like, this is crazy. There's, there's mob and uproar. And it's a scary thing. Um, when we were in um, Badur this year, uh, you know, we're, we're in there preaching in, this, in the church there in Badur in Dill's church. And all of a sudden there's, there's kind of a sound of, you know, a tumult uh, down, you know, I don't know how far away it was, but probably a quarter mile or less. And you can kind of hear some people and some commotion and no one really knows what's going on. And then uh, there's a gunshot. And then, you know, Luke, who had gone um, with Sujan to go get us some noodles and pop or something like that, which is classic um, Nepali cuisine. Um, you know, he gets some tear gas that drifts over and, you know, and it's just, there's a little unrest and we don't know if our bus is going through. And that was on a mild scale, but there, there's some crazy stuff. This whole city is being turned upside down at this point. And so they send Paul away by night. Paul's testimony, he writes about it in Galatians, is that there's a lot of times that he has to hide by night and, and go away by night, whether it was when he was a new believer and he's let out of the wall of Damascus in a basket or later on in his testimony in the book of Acts when he, you know, he gets about 200 soldiers and horsemen to take him to Caesarea and they have to head out uh, secretly. Um, or, or here um, in Thessalonica. I uh, heard about the Baltimore, Baltimore Colts football fans who still grieve over the night of March 28, 1984, where under the cover of darkness, the Colts owner, Robert Irsay, hired a moving company to clean out the football team's offices and drive their equipment up to Indianapolis. Uh, basically, a sports franchise literally snuck out of town in the moonlight. Uh, Irsay relocated his team to Indiana in the middle of the night to avoid negative publicity. He said later, the press was hounding my family for two years, and I wasn't about to take anymore. And, uh, and it's you know, a little bit of why Paul left <laughs> in the middle of the night. Can't take this anymore, and he's out of there. And so he heads away to Berea. And uh, as you look at verse 11 of Acts 17, hopefully if, if you say it, Acts 17, 11, your mind automatically goes to a group of people called the Bereans who were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. And that, that is something to be praying for for our church, that our church would be a group of people who are fair-minded. They're fair we are fair inquirers. When the word of God is preached, as the word is expounded, that people are fair with that. Like, you know, you just exegeted the text. You brought the word of God to bear on my heart. And that might be a total affront to my flesh or my culture right now. But it's the word of God. And I'm going to give it a fair chance to change me. We need to pray that over our body. And that our body would receive the word with all readiness. We're ready. You guys think that when you come on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, we're like, we're ready. I think you guys are. I think no fluffiness, but you might be my fair-minded ones. I don't know. Um, don't tell anybody else I said that. Um, fluffiness is what I'm talking about. Don't tell anyone I said the word fluffiness. Um, last night, we're eating dinner, and Russell goes, Dad, will you butter my bread? And so I'm like, son, you are the most handsome, good-looking boy. Butter me up. That was it. Will you butter me up? <laughs> so I went on for a while, and then Lindsay ended up buttering. So this was buttering you guys up here tonight. Um, they received the word of the, That was a total rabbit trail, but it came back. 
They receive the word of God with all readiness. And listen to this. They search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Also something we encourage our church to do, to be men and women of the word who know how to to, um, interpret the word by the rules of interpretation and that they would search the scripture to see if the things that they hear are so. Therefore, because of that, because they were receiving the word with readiness, searching the scripture daily, and were fair-minded, because of that, a great many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Second time that we read in the, in the book of Acts of leading women and prominent women getting saved. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul in Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. And so again, Paul had to, you know, those Thessalonian Jews came, created another mob, so Paul had to sneak away again. And he went to the ocean this time, and, and he would end up going to Athens. Um, verse 15, so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Um, so Paul's second missionary journey starts with him being forbidden by the Lord to go like south, uh, southeast, southwest, and north. Uh, he'd already come from the direct south. Now he's up against the ocean. A vision of the Lord says, hey, head over to Macedonia. They go to Macedonia. They preach in Philippi. Uh, they cast a demon girl, a demon out of a girl. Uh, that, she was a fortune teller, and that robs her owners of money. So they're arrested. They're put in prison. They're beat. They're in the stockades in Philippi. They begin to sing hymns and worship the Lord. An earthquake happens. All the prison doors are open. Uh, the jailer, Philippian jailer, sees that grabs his sword, he's about to kill himself, and Paul says, hold on, we're all here, don't harm yourself. The Philippian jailer says this wonderful phrase, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul responds, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The Philippian house, uh, jailer's household uh, gets saved. Uh, this is all after they met a women's prayer meeting down by the river, and uh, Lydia, the seller of purple scarlet, had, you know, uh, you know, the Lord had been praying, preparing their hearts to be saved. And so this Philippian church, it started by, by women who had a prayer meeting by the river, uh, an ex-demon-possessed girl, and a Philippian jailer and his family. And, uh, and so as they move on down the Ignatian Way, they come to Thessalonica. You know, it's, it's the second missionary journey still. Um, they preach the gospel in the synagogue for close to a month, anywhere from the end of two weeks to um, four weeks, close to a month. And, uh, and they reason. He reasons. Just like Isaiah would say, come, let us reason together. Uh, though our sins, your sins, are as crimson, he will make them as white as snow. And so, um, you know, many of these Greeks, you know, who are ready for this. The Lord had made them ready for this. They believe in prominent women and jealous Jews, stir up a mob, kidnap Jason, uh, you know, take some money and release Jason. Paul hides by night and is, and is sent out of town, down to Berea. Fair-minded, reasonable people searching the Scripture to see if these things were so. Uh, they get saved. 
And, and then the Jews hear about this again, and they come down, and they stir up a mob again. Paul is sent away. He goes down to Athens. He preaches a pretty good sermon, and it's met with mixed response. Some are critical of his sermon in Athens, although I think it is fantastic as he preaches the crucifixion, the resurrection, and God's sovereign provision for people all over the world. And people mock him because he preaches of the resurrection. And so then he goes down to Corinthians, where he's in a, Corinthians, Corinth, where he's a little bit discouraged, you know, at this point in the second missionary journey. And so he, he's longing for Silas and Timothy to meet him there, and they end up uh, finally joining him, and they tell him about how wonderful the Thessalonian believers are, what a great work God is doing there. And he's so excited that he can't grab pen and paper fast enough, and he begins to write the Thessalonians, the letter we're reading right now. And, and that's, that's where we're at. Um, there's not a whole lot of correction. It's early on in the history of the church. A lot of the drama hasn't happened yet. A lot of the false teachers haven't been brought around yet, uh, haven't come around yet. And so um, it's almost like a pure letter to a pure church at this point. Um, look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. When Paul prayed for people and for churches, it wasn't necessarily a long time of intercession, person by person, but here he just simply says, I make mention of you in our prayers. I was thinking tonight as we were praying out, um, just have the John Day church uh, in my heart, and I meant to pray out, and, and I didn't, but you know, uh, John Day, um, Calvary Chapel John Day, or Strawberry Mountain Christian Fellowship is what it's called, um, their pastor Ira is is moving and um, next Sunday or the thirty what's what's the uh, date there? It's the last Sunday in May is um, is his last Sunday there, and then between Burns and our church, we're going to be sending a rotation of uh, preachers and teachers there. Um, they have about eleven guys, maybe even thirteen guys that we'll be sending in a rotation to go teach in John Day, and um, so we need to be praying for that church. They're going to be like a sister church to us and. And uh, we're going to be, as often as we can, just taking people in our car and heading over there on Sunday evenings to, uh, to preach and to teach and, and see what God does in John Day. There's already great things happening, and um, we've had such a wonderful story of what God's done in Lapine through sending Chad and doing a teaching rotation there, confident that um, the Lord's just giving us vision to reach Central Oregon um, and Seneca and Burns and then some of the surrounding little cow towns, if you want to call them that. But uh, we want to make mention of the church in John Day in these weeks, just as Paul would make mention of the church in Thessal- uh, Thessalonica or Salonica. Um, but uh, Moffat says that it wasn't Paul alone that was preaching. There's a plural word here that implies that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were all crying out in prayer, making mention. Uh, verse 3, remembering without ceasing... Your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Um, And so we have this incredible list of virtues, faith, hope, and love. Paul loved those virtues. Um, But we also notice that he doesn't just mention the virtues, he mentions the fruit of that come from such virtues. And so he says, we remember without ceasing your work of faith. Uh, Their faith produced 
works. And that is the nature of true faith. It's the book of James is all about that. You tell me that you have faith without works, and I'll show you I have faith by my works. Because faith without works is dead. And so he mentions that they've got a work of faith. And then notice there's another type of work. It's a labor of love. In the Greek, kopos agapes, a toil of love. Their love produced labor. Now, there are different Greek words for work, whether it's ergon or kopos. Ergon might mean a pleasant, stimulating work, but the word here for labor of love is the word kopos. Now, listen to it. It implies arduous, wearing toil that is strenuous and sweat-producing. Now, I know our Prineville folks, they know some kopos, right? Like that is, we are used to that kind of labor. Arduous, wearisome work that is going to cause sweat. And that's the type of labor of love. You've heard that term before, right? Labor of love. It was a labor of love. He came over and mowed my lawn or, you know, (laughs) um, we're talking labor of love. I was so blessed to hear that in Aaron's move the other day, you might have noticed on Facebook, you know, there was kind of this word out like, we need some help, you know, we're drowning, we're moving this weekend. And to just have heard just guys just showing up, like kind of out of nowhere with horse trailers and guys with their sons and laboring. And labor of love produces sweat. And so Lord, be showing us how we can um, have works of faith and labors of love. And then the third thing, faith, hope, and love, we're at hope here. Patience of hope or hopeful endurance, steadfast expectation. Their hope produced patience which was a long-suffering endurance needed not only to just merely survive through hard times, but to triumph through them and to come out on top. The word here is not passive resignation. Oh, we're going we're gonna to make it through this one way or another. Like It probably won't kill us. It's not just passive resignation, but it's active constancy in the faith of extreme difficulty active constancy in the face of extreme difficulty william barclay a a well-known scottish professor wrote it is the spirit that can bear things not simply with the spirit of resignation but with blazing hope then barclay goes on to quote george matheson who was a musician stricken by blindness and just known to be disappointed in love as a result of his blindness. And, and, and Barclay writes of Matheson, his love was requited with frequency and he lived in isolation, but nevertheless stricken in blindness and disappointed in love, he wrote a prayer in which he pleaded with God that he might accept God's will, not with dumb resignation, but with holy joy, not only with the absence of murmur, but rather with a song of praise. So not just to passive, dumbfully resign that this is the way it's just going to be, but to be praising God with a faith that functions, a love that labors, and a hope that hangs on. Look at verse 4. There's only 10 verses tonight. I get to take a little longer on some of the... Oh, don't do that, Roy. Okay, I won't. Verse 4. 
knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. There's a few wonderful things here about the sovereignty of God and election that we don't have to be afraid of. We can rejoice in these doctrines. But number one, we can know our election. And those shepherding us can know our election. But notice it's within the context of family. Beloved brethren, my very limited Greek that I know from a basic child's card game that I have and an old computer PC like pixelated version of it. Um, there's two words that I, that I know from Greek. It's agapeo and adelphos. All right. Beloved brethren. Okay. The beloved brethren can know their election. The shepherds can know the beloved brethren's election or their selection that God has chosen them in his foreknowledge, in his sovereignty. You know, in trying to grasp with this finite mind God's election, my friend Adam Poole, who is the leader of the School of Ministry in Corvallis, he's got his doctorate, and he just helped me, he explained it to me one day that election is a family language. Election is a family language. And so here, Paul speaks of election to his family, to his beloved brethren. On this side of salvation, we can speak of election and rejoice in election and that with election comes wonderful assurance. In another place, in Colossians 3.12, he says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Those who are holy and those who are beloved, the family, they are the elect of God. God loved them. God chose them. Leon Morris, who I found to be very helpful in the commentary realm, wrote many years ago, left to ourselves, we do not wish to leave our state of untroubled sinfulness. It is only because God first convicts us and enables us that we can make the motion of wanting to turn from our sins. So, Salvation begins with God. He's the initiator. He's the one that before the foundations of the world chose us Christians and elected us in his sovereignty, elected according to foreknowledge. It doesn't begin with man. A Cornelius passage or the Greeks who were restless against polytheism and attracted to monotheism. It didn't begin with them just in the goodness of their heart kind of wanting something better. It began with the conviction of the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It began with Him enlightening their eyes to see their sin and their depravity and their need for a Savior. When we are just left to ourselves, we'll never just just hunker down and you know, I'm just going to leave this state of sinfulness. And you know, having an understanding of election and selection and God's choice, it helps us understand when people who are shared the gospel time and time and time again, and they just say no, and they say no, and they say no. It helps us understand a little bit of, of what's going on in the big picture. And people, when they can come and they can sit through messages that are preached and the gospel is preached in power, and they might even, on the outside, show some displays of religion. 
and yet there's never a change on the inside of their vessel in their heart, it goes to show that somewhere out there, there hasn't been this spiritual awakening in their heart yet. And somewhere out there, these two pillars of God sovereignly choosing and electing and this other pillar of responding to that gospel call to repentance, somewhere they meet before the throne of God and I don't know where it is. But you can pray for me right now because as I study this tonight, you know, many people come to my mind, but probably no one more so than my 96-year-old on June 14th grandfather uh, who's on hospice right now and might live a week, might live three months, has heard the gospel many times and even though claims to be a Christian, there are no fruits of righteousness in his life. And my uncle, who's a preacher as well, and I just sit there and we just go, man, God is so patient, not wanting that anyone would perish, that out of all my grandparents, kind of the one that's just a little more on the, on the rambunctious side, <laughs> um, you know, that, that he is still just in a place with a hard heart towards the gospel. And so pray for my grandpa Buck that over these, you know, days, weeks um, of interaction with family and just challenging, you know, where are you at in your relationship with the Lord? We, we would love nothing more than to see a brokenness where he just lays down all of his pride and accomplishments and just, just receives the blood-bought gift of salvation from Jesus. And, and, uh, and I'm just like, oh Lord, like, you know, I, I prayed, I've been praying the prayer of D.L. Moody. Lord, save the elect and then elect some more. You know, and if at this point I can't call grandpa brother, then then Lord, if it's possible through prayers, like almost an Abrahamic, don't destroy Sodom, you know, change your mind. Lord, if there's any way, I just say elect some more. Elect one more. And you know, maybe there's just people that come to your mind. I don't we don't know, right? On this end, we don't know. It's a family language. And so, Lord, uh praying for my family. Pray for some election. Pray praying in that way now i know it's it's a difficult doctrine but it's a profitable doctrine and um the following verses in our text will explain why paul was so confident in the thessalonican church's election by god there were definite signs that paul could see that he could say you're elect brothers um <clears throat> charles spurgeon preached this passage and he on he found four evidences of election um and we'll see that in the following passages um alistair Begg says how do we know who are elect as we go out to preach he says we may never know in prospect but we may know in retrospect so we go out we preach the gospel to all of creation we hope every man repents all right we know the lord desires that none would perish but that all would come to salvation and yet, not all do. And so, our job is to preach, and we just trust the election and the choosing up to, to uh, the Lord. And so, uh, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, logos, the word, but also in power, dynamite in the Greek, the dynamite power, and in the Holy Spirit, who brings that power, the hagios pneumati, the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, speaks of full assurance and complete certainty, as you know what kind of men we were for your sake. And so Spurgeon would tell us in his sermon that we know that these people were elect by the first sign here in the Scripture, that the Word of God came home with power. 
Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power. You know, anyone can get up here and say the words that I'm saying. But it's when the Holy Spirit speaks them forth in the gospel context through men and women who've been changed by the Holy Spirit, they themselves are partakers of grace, that it comes not just in words, but in power. We think too little about the spiritual operations of the Word of God, that there's a spiritual work in God's Word that goes far beyond just basic educational Bible study. Much more is happening when we crack open the Word and the preacher preaches. So when we hear people say, why would I want to go to church just to hear somebody talk? They're absolutely right. Because if it's just somebody talking, then it's just words and there's no life. But when we can say as Paul that I didn't come to you in wisdom of words, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that's when the Lord brings the Word of God to bear on the hearts of men and women, and they are changed inwardly. It's a work that happens inside that nothing merely external can accomplish. Or the flip side of that is, hey, you ought to come to my church and listen to him talk. There's no power in that. There's a hilarious blog called the Babylon Bee, and they basically just make fun of everything Christianese that is just, you know, silly about um, Christian culture sometimes. And I remember one of them that Stephanie shared with me was, was top 10 ways to, um, what was it? Uh, it wasn't insult your pastor, but it might have been hurt your pastor's feelings, you know. And one of them was, come up to your pastor after a Sunday morning, slap him in the arm and say, good speech, <laughs> you know. And it's like, this isn't a speech, <laughs> you know. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is the Spirit of God bringing the Word of God as a surgical in, uh, instrument to dissect your heart, discern the thoughts and intents of your heart, bring you under the conviction of the Word of God and change your life as you're drawn to repentance to now follow the living God. And as that happens in your life, you are elect. You're elect. Um, now we don't have the time to go through every single reference that I've got here. But they're good ones. I mean, they're bold and underlined. They're verses about... The, the hand of the Lord was with them in their preaching. That's when you know it's not just words, but it's power. And many times, Paul would say, and we'll just do 1 Corinthians 2 for, again, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. If you can start praying this for me every Sunday morning or whoever's preaching from this pulpit, pray that with your family. You pray as you're coming down the grade or wherever you're coming from. Pray over the preaching of this church. That it wouldn't be, you know, Rory just trying to carefully craft just the eloquent three points in a poem because that won't do it. But that the, dem the Holy Spirit would be demonstrated in power so that men and women would be brought to faith not human wisdom, but, but the power of God, he says. Then we have 
And it came in much assurance there in our text. And so the second thing Spurgeon says is the reception of God's word with much assurance shows that you're elect. There can be full assurance of understanding. Paul writes about it in Hebrews, or or, uh, whoever wrote Hebrews, we don't know. Some think it was Paul. He says, we have a hope that is sure and steadfast and like an anchor for the soul. Assurance shows election. He goes on to say, and you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul writes of his character and integrity in chapter 2. We'll see next week. He was about that. The ministry of the men ministering, as he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 3, we don't want to give an offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. You know what kind of men we were among you. And that's our heart as well as elders and church leaders and core group leaders and people who are serving, that we'd be able to say to people that, you know, if they leave or they're gone, we can say, you know what? At the end of the day, you know what kind of men and women we were among you. We were uncompromising in truth and in integrity. Praise God. Verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of God in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Poor Terry back there on her first night, and I'm just hopping, I'm just hopscotching for the sake of time. We're like doing like a tenth of our references. Sorry about that. Um, and so uh, we see that you became followers of us, and of the Lord. So this shows us that Paul's message included an element of personal discipleship. And I think that that's true for us, that you, you follow men, not to be man followers, but you follow men as they follow Christ. So you follow the elders as they pursue Christ. Uh, you follow your core group leaders as they've been hand-selected from the elders to help carry the load of leading the people in our church. Uh, follow them Personal discipleship is a key element of New Testament Christianity. Paul personally led the Thessalonian Christians in their spiritual life. Um, And in that, then they would follow the Lord as well. And so that's the third evidence of election. There was a desire to be like Jesus, to follow the Lord. If there's not a desire to be like Jesus, you know, someone might raise their hand at a crusade or claim that, you know, this or that happened in them and that they are now... You know, oh, you know, I'm in, and you know, we were talking to someone, and um, they mentioned they went to church, and and uh, you know, we, oh, are you a Christian? And, and we heard, oh, very much so. And you're like, okay, so what does that even mean? We kind of have a joke. We have a little bit of a joke that you know, we'll be talking to someone, and they'll refer to someone that, oh, they're a strong Christian, you know, but they're sleeping with their girlfriend. It's like strong Christian sleeping with girlfriend cannot go hand in hand. Maybe slept with girlfriend, but there will be repentance. Amen. And so uh, there will be a desire to be like Jesus. How do you know if you're elect and if you're chosen? I want to be like the Lord. I want to be holy like the Lord. And then we also have in the same verse, the fourth reason or way or evidence to know that you are elect, the existence of spiritual joy in spiritual service. And we read that in that there was much affliction and they had the joy of the Holy Spirit. I think Mark prayed that out tonight. Just joy in the midst of trials um and uh, uh much 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 joy with much affliction verse 7 so that you became examples to all in macedonia and achaia who believe 
Interesting, in 2 Corinthians 8, we have Macedonians serving as examples to Corinthians in generous giving. And here we have the Thessalonians kind of being a core example. They are Macedonians, but it'd be like saying, you Americans are an example to the rest of America. You know, uh, that's the Thessalonians uh, are the, an example to the rest of, of Macedonia. And their suffering was what the, they were an example in. C.S. Lewis says, suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And they were roused. For verse 8, from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Lewis was right in saying that, wasn't he? That suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that here, the word of the Lord sounded forth from them in their suffering. The word sounding forth means a loud ringing sound as of a trumpet blast. Um, I was driving by the Nazarene church today and I noticed up uh, at the top of their church, they've got four, you know, kind of megaphone loudspeakers like you'd see at a sporting event or something. And I was like, I wonder what those are there for. I wonder if it's, you know, if there's an earthquake or if there's something, you know, maybe that's like emergency. Someone find that out for me, will you? Um, but I was like, how sweet. You get on the CB and you just start preaching the gospel and, you know, from the top of the church, you know, the whole town. Uh, that's probably what they use it for, I'm sure. Um, but th- there was a sounding forth throughout Macedonia. And let's throw that map up because sometimes we, we hear these names and we, I don't know what they're talking about. So just remember, Macedonia and Achaia, that word, uh, so Macedonia is up north, Achaia is down, Corinth is part of Achaia. Um, <clears throat> that's the area that this testimony of the Thessalonians is sounding forth. And uh, back down to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. <clears throat> For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so notice these words here. They were turning from wickedness and then serving God. In another place, Paul says, flee sexual immorality and pursue righteousness. So those things go hand in hand. There's a turning from sin and a turning to God. Turning away from immorality and turning to serving God and living righteous lives. It's interesting that the, that the Romans in this day and the Greeks didn't understand the idea of serving a God. They didn't have room for that in their religion, like living a life of service to this God. And so for them to begin to serve God meant they had to serve a completely different God, uh, the God of the Bible. I heard the story today of a missionary in Latin America who was standing next to a chipped chalkboard teaching a seminary course and uh, he didn't have any chalk and one of the students handed him like this really strange looking chunk of chalk and uh, the the professor was like what is this and the child told him when we gave up our idols we broke them up and now we use them for chalk and that's essentially what you know okay that's done we're done with that and now we're using now we're you know we're preaching the gospel we're preaching seminary courses Uh, it's a totally different life Charles Spurgeon said, everybody asked, why, what has happened to these Thessalonians? These people have broken their idols. They worship the one God. They trust in Jesus. They are no longer drunken, dishonest, impure, and contentious. Everybody talked of what had taken place among these converted people. 
Oh, for conversions, plentiful, clear, singular, and manifest, that so the Word of God may sound out. Our converts are our best advertisements and arguments. I'm going to pray that out tonight over our church. That just is so on my heart tonight. Lord, we pray for conversions through the preaching of the gospel among people who call Calvary Chapel their home. We pray for plentiful, clear, singular, showing salvation among people in this town so that Your Word can sound out. Lord, we want our converts to be our best advertisements and our best arguments. Closing out with verse 10 tonight. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God. Christians will have their eyes looking up, waiting for the return of the Lord. The Lord that was raised from the dead. Notice that is always something that is preached. Let the resurrection be something that is always preached from us. And notice that Jesus, He delivers us from the wrath to come. When He comes and catches us up in the clouds to meet Him in the air, we'll read that in chapter 4 as we study 1 Thessalonians, it will be the beginning of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And, and just as Revelation tells us, He will keep us from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world. And so, uh, may we be those Christians, just like the Thessalonians, who wait for His Son to return. First John tells us, He who has this hope in Himself purifies Himself just as He is pure. That Jesus who rose from the dead, He's going to come back and deliver us from the wrath. And First Thessalonians 5.9 tells us that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The seven-year tribulation period that will begin with the rapture of the church is a time of God's outpouring of wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. It's my personal uh, understanding that Christians won't be here for that. We will be enjoying seven years in heaven with the Lord uh, in His presence uh, while wrath is poured out. Um, And in that time, Israel will come to know Jesus as Messiah. So 